Good morning. Welcome back to the program. Like two diverging paths in the woods, the lives of family members often go off in very different directions. For some, the road taken leads to success and the good life. For others, that may be the road not taken, and it leads to a different kind of life. This might be the metaphor for David and Alan Berg. One brother would become one of our nation's most respected trial lawyers, the other murdered at a young age by a notorious hitman who turned out to be the father of actor Woody Harrelson. And that's just the beginning of the memoir by my guest, David Berg. David Berg is a writer and lawyer. He's written dozens of political, personal, and legal essays. His articles have appeared in numerous publications. He's the author of the previous The Trial Lawyer, What It Takes to Win. It is my pleasure to welcome David Berg to the program to talk about his new memoir, Run, Brother, Run, a memoir of a murder in my family. David Berg, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to have you here, David. Tell us a little bit about your experience growing up in the rural South. Well, it, it was um, it was really helpful. We're, we were basically outsiders looking in. And we grew up. I grew up primarily in Little Rock until I was eleven, and Houston after that. And it was our political beliefs and and our the fact that we were Jewish that set us apart. And did you have that sense, did you and your brother both have that sense of being outsiders, of being the proverbial strangers in a strange land? Uh, absolutely. Um, we were, I think actually that had, that informed both our lives. It made me very comfortable uh, doing things that other people might not do when I became a lawyer, handling cases that others wouldn't, like ACLU cases. But Alan and I both had been, uh, the object of uh, attempts to convert us, uh, anti-Semitic remarks, things that are in the book uh, that that are actually quite funny. Some of them uh, in the in the first half of the book. Funny, but also a sense of danger from all of this. This was the early and mid 1960s. This was a very different time, even in the South. You know, there was a difference between Alan and me. Uh, Alan was afraid of nothing. And I really did feel kind of a sense of, of danger. Uh, my dad was an outspoken integrationist, and he would shout down everybody, uh, friends and foe alike, on the issue. And, you know, that, that, that kind of talk could get you killed back then. Tell us a little bit about your dad. Dad was um, probably the smartest guy I've ever known. Uh, to be candid, and as I say in the book, he he was like one of those smartest guys in the room, but he lacked judgment he had very poor judgment he um attended medical school in, at the university of arkansas it was quite a feat to get in because in those days there were serious jewish quotas uh, on the number of students who could get in and it was arkansas and later in life uh he made decisions that i thought were very poor and that i think led to my brother's demise in some ways your brother went into your father's carpet business. Explain all that. Yeah, he and Dad were partners in the carpet business. And Dad always used to say Alan was a crackerjack salesman, and there's no way to to describe how good he was. He could he could close any, any sale at all. Uh, in my book, I talk about his uh, sort of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross approach to things. He would get on the phone. He would uh, talk to customers and tell them, look, um, I've got a feeling that I'm going to be, you and I are going to be friends. Uh, before we talk about carpet, uh, these are talking to prospective customers. Can we can we sit down and have a cup of coffee? Because Vern, may I call you Vern? 
uh, I feel we're going to be friends. And he was just, he was extraordinary in the way he approached things. Actually, you know, I had to accompany him on what we called leads to sell carpet, and I don't think I ever saw him miss a sale. You and your brother were very close, but very, very different. Talk about that dichotomy. Well, Alan was brought up without any stability at all. When our parents separated, we were we were very young. I, I was four and Alan was ten. And they divvied us up. Alan went off with Dad, and I went off with my mother to Little Rock. My mother was pregnant at the time with my sister. And I stayed in one place till I was 11, and then I moved to Houston. Alan, on the other hand, traveled around the country with Dad. And, my, you know, my dad during those days was seeking a better job all the time. He, he did not become a doctor. And he had no stability. In fact, Alan attended 13 schools by the time he graduated high school. So there was a lack of stability, and Alan sometimes exercised very poor judgment. Um, in my case, I, I, you know, I was no peach at, in school. I mean, I was, I got, I'm probably one of the few humans who's ever been expelled from grammar school, <laughs> which I kind of, I, I think is kind of a, an accomplishment. But he, he, um, he had no stability in his life, and, and I did. And that made a huge difference. What impact did that have on him? I think Alan was constantly in search of my father's approval. You know, we live in the context of our families. No matter how old we get, we still hear the voices of a mother or a father especially. But Dad occupied Alan's mind in a way that I've never seen before or since. And in essence, tried to gain my father's approval, which was never forthcoming. I, I got to a point very early on when I understood that Dad was afraid of our becoming successful um, in, in that kind of perverse way that he didn't want us to outdo him. And so my father's approval was no longer a prize worth winning by the time I was 18. There was a real Willie Loman quality in, in that respect to your father. Yes, um, well said. He he wanted us to live out his failed dreams. He wanted us to become doctors. Um, he wanted us to do what he had not been able to do because he had been expelled from medical school. Um, and it became an obsession with him. It was not an easy life for Alan or for me, uh, but... Alan actually went on to become accepted to medical school. He worked very hard after he got out of the Navy and was accepted to the University of Texas Medical School. And I recount in the book an incident occurred, that occurred between Alan and Dad, then a big blow-up for no reason whatsoever as Alan was on his way to enroll, and he never enrolled. In my case, um, I just kind of learned a series of negative injunctions Growing up in that household, you know, I would I would never get in the way of my children and their dreams, and and I haven't. Talk a little bit about the decision that Alan made, your brother made, to get into business with your father, to go to work for the carpet business. How did your father accept that? Well, my father, uh, when Dad wanted us to do something, he would talk to us in in, in the most uh, uh, intimate kind of way. And he'd just make you feel like uh, the man in the moon. You know, it'd make you feel like you're walking on the moon, rather. And he and Dad ran into each other one day. Um, 
in a delicatessen in Houston, the only delicatessen <laughs> in Houston in the early 60s. And Dad told him he was having a tough time in business, and he needed his son. They had been estranged for a while. He missed his son, and he needed him because Alan was, as I said, uh, a crackerjack salesman. And that got Alan into the business with Dad. They became partners. And tell us about San Antonio and the manager that they hired there. Yeah, uh, Alan uh, and Dad expanded pretty rapidly, and they wanted to be statewide. And they went from Houston, where they had a very success, successful uh, first year, to San Antonio and opened a branch office. Alan hired a man there who came out of the siding business in Kansas City and was just Alan thought was going to be great, and he was. But Alan didn't check out his references. And after a few months, uh, there was a big blow-up between my father and this manager. My father thought the man had been pocketing money. The man claimed that Dad owed him money. And oddly enough, then Dad went back to Houston, and um, went, and that man followed him to Houston and opened up his own carpet store. And then Dad set about the business of trying to keep him out of business by bad-mouthing him all over town, especially to lenders and finance companies. And that's where the trouble began. Explain what happened from there. Yeah, um, the the manager, uh, there, there, there began to be warning signs. Alan was nearly run off into the bayou when he was driving home one night and thought that it was, thought he recognized the car of this manager. Uh, I got a call when I was at Dad's house from the manager asking me how much my father's art was worth because he was going to get all of it in a lawsuit. And there were other warning signs, and Alan and I sat down with Dad, and this was very unusual for our family. We wanted to approach it in a very calm manner, and we told Dad that he had to quit bad-mouthing the, the, the uh, former manager, that it, that it was getting scary. And as soon as I said it was scary, I was scared. My father blew up, and, and we ended up not getting, not convincing him to stop. And at that, about the same time, as my research has shown me, uh, this manager was at a card game and, and, and said aloud that he wanted to kill my brother, that my brother had taken a sale away from him, and that my, my father and brother owed him money. And uh, there was a man sitting at the table, it was Charles Harrelson, who threw him a card, uh, his business card, which said, Have Gun, Will Travel. And soon thereafter, Alan was kidnapped and murdered. And Charles Harrelson, six months later when we found Alan's remains, Charles Harrelson was indicted. And the former manager was um, indicted as, a, as an accomplice. It was alleged by an eyewitness to the murder, uh, uh, Harrelson's girlfriend, that Harrelson told her that the man had paid paid him, Harrelson, $1,500 to kill my brother. Your brother disappeared. At first, you didn't know what had happened to him. No. I, he, he disappeared on a May night in 1968. My sister-in-law called me at 4 in the morning, and that began the odyssey of trying to find him. The police in Houston dismissed my father's concern and my concern as just a, and, and said he was just a runaway husband. And we knew how much he loved his wife and kids, and certainly our closeness told me that he, he would not desert anybody. 
not his family ever, because he had, he had spent his whole life in search of a family like the one he had. So there began the Odyssey. Dad launched an investigation when the police would not launch one of their own, and for six months we we were it was impossible to lead anything that would be considered a normal life. I, I hardly took an unlabored breath, and we got. My dad was put up a reward, and various con men, including cops and lawyers, uh, tried to shake Dad down for that reward. It took six months, and as you know, because you've obviously read the book, along the way there was a very odd circumstance involving one of the investigators. Even during the six-month period, your father even went to George H.W. Bush, who was the congressman there at the time. Yes, yes, he did. Um, he had gone up to Washington to visit with Jack Brooks, who was uh, the most powerful man in Congress and very close to LBJ. Uh, Dad had been introduced to him by a powerful Beaumont family, where Brooks, which Brooks represented. They were in his district. Brooks turned him down, and, and Dad literally ran down George H.W. Bush, who was a first-term congressman from Houston, in the hallway, Bush ushered him into his office and thereafter triggered an investigation by the FBI. Within a week, he, had, he even had J. Edgar Hoover on the case. But yet what broke the case was, was a snitch, really, uh, a former girlfriend of Harrelson's. That's right. She, she had run off, literally, because she was terrified of Harrelson. He had threatened to kill her. He'd beaten her half to death several times. She was the eyewitness to the murder. And um, just parenthetically, I've learned that Charles Harrelson always wanted a witness when he murdered somebody. It somehow excited him. Anyway, she ran off with a friend of Harrelson's who had been terrified terrified of, of uh, approaching her but finally, because of Harrelson and finally did. She confessed to this man and and... There's lots of irony in this case, some of it not so ironic. He turned out to be a former salesman of my father and brother's. And he called Dad, uh, came to Houston from California where they were hiding, and told him the whole story. And it was after that that we sent the investigator, our private investigator, out to Surfside, Texas. And he found Alan's remains in the swales of a shallow ditch. To what extent did the police and the authorities begin to take it seriously at that point? Well, they had. there was one story in the Houston Post uh, in August of that year. Allen disappeared in May, and in August uh, we, there was a big story in the paper about what apparently had been a murder scene, and, was it, and the question raised was, was it Allen Berg's uh, blood that was found there. And that was in August. Um, the Texas Rangers intervened, and that got the local police in, in, involved. So by October, uh, Bush had gotten the, when Congressman, well, President Bush, then Congressman Bush had gotten the FBI involved, we had uh, serious interest from, uh, from all the authorities. But it was, it still took my father's reward to break the story open. A trial ensues. Harrelson is indicted, as you say. The, the, the guy that hired him is indicted as, as a, an accessory. 
Talk about what happened in that trial. Harrelson had hired the most famous criminal lawyer in America at the time, a man named Percy Foreman. Percy Foreman had two steps to every trial. The first is a very generally accepted one. I used it myself when I tried criminal cases. Um, he put everybody on trial but the defendant. He put the, uh, the victim, the state, the prosecution, everyone on trial, the justice system itself. And if that wasn't enough, it, it usually is enough for, for an honest lawyer. But Foreman had what he called his reserve witnesses. And this was well known to his colleagues, and, and certainly if you followed his cases, there was always a witness who showed up, or two, or three, who would place the defendant a hundred miles away, somewhere different than the time and place of the uh, murder or whatever crime had occurred. So he hired Foreman, and Foreman tried the case. He, the, the prosecution, I thought, was inept. I've done a lot of research and reconstructed the trial, and I have my own notes from them, and my sister attended every day of the trial. I, I would have been excluded, as I explain in the book, uh, because of a subpoena. But it, where, where you, uh, if I were a witness, I couldn't sit in the courtroom. And there were other reasons, too, but, uh, that I didn't go, but uh, none of which I'm particularly proud of. But, but what happened was that Foreman uh, provided eyewitness, I mean, excuse me, alibi witnesses. The prosecution did not know how to cross-examine them, and the case ended in an acquittal. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you the truth. If I had been on that jury... I'd have had to have acquitted Harrelson myself, not because he was innocent, but because the state never made its case. Who paid, who put up the money for Percy Foreman? Charles Harrelson's dad had an 80-acre farm, and uh, or ranch, rather, and Foreman took that as part of his fee. The man who hired uh, Harrelson, the former employee of my father and brother, uh, testified in his divorce hearing that he had spent $400,000 on Foreman and another lawyer, both in the criminal case and the uh, and, and a tax case he had. So it was those two sources. Even though the girlfriend basically was was a first had first-hand knowledge, what impact did that have on the jury? It was it was powerful, but the problem was, and this is where Foreman oddly enough acting honestly proved beyond any doubt in my mind that there was a common-law marriage between Harrelson and this woman, whose name was Sandra Sue Attaway. And under the law of this and every other state, a husband, if they found there was a common-law marriage, a husband can't testify against a wife and a wife against a husband. So the judge told the jury, if you believe they were married, you have to disregard all of her testimony. Well the mistake the prosecution made was that there were other backup witnesses who could have been indicted or uh, who, have got, who could have gotten immunity and could have testified against Harrelson. He confessed to one man, and, of course, one of the, 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 the most ironic moments in the book is that Harrelson's brother was a private investigator, and my dad just coincidentally hired him. Uh, somewhere midsummer between May and November when we found Alan. And that investigator came to my father and told him he could tell him where Alan's body was for the reward 
and he could tell, but he couldn't tell him who killed killed my brother because he didn't know. Well, he was the brother of the killer, and that man could have been indicted for extortion um, when he tried to shake down Dad for the for the for the uh, reward. And that was where the prosecution really fell short. You could not try. It's very difficult to try a one witness case. Eyewitness testimony is not nearly as believable or credible as testimony that's circumstantial and indirect. But if you have two or three other witnesses, including the defendant's brother under indictment, that testimony takes on biblical proportions, brother against brother. And I think there would have been a conviction. But as I say, they excluded, the jury excluded uh, the wife, the common law wife's testimony, and the case fell apart. What impact did it have on you and your family when the acquittal happened? Well, my dad and my mother, uh, who were divorced, but my dad and mother and stepmother were dumbfounded. Um, I don't know. I, I remember the day it happened. My own mentor, who later became the most famous criminal lawyer in America, Racehorse Haynes, I remember he, I was at the a place called the Ends of Court where lawyers met at the end of a court day. And Racehorse came over and said, David, I'm so sorry about the acquittal. And in just an offhand way, I said, well, it affirms my, my, my belief in the justice system. But that was an ironic statement for me because I really do believe fundamentally our system works. It works as, it's flawed like crazy. But it, it, it works very well overall. And for me, it just somehow, I vented my anger. I directed all my anger toward any opponent I had in the courtroom. And it fueled my desire to try the hardest kind of cases and to win every time I could. So my, my, my reaction was that it fueled my desire to be the best lawyer I could be. And maybe in my own way, um, in my own way, extract a measure of justice for my brother, too. To the extent that Harrelson's son would become famous, talk about what, if any, impact that has on this story. Well, the, the, the problem I have, Woody Harrelson had nothing to do, of course, with the murder. He was a kid. But he has injected himself into this by if not trying to heroize, at least legitimize his father. He's insisted on his father's innocence. For instance, after the acquittal uh, in, in my brother's case, Charles Harrelson went on uh, to be convicted of a, another murder uh, of a grain dealer down in the valley, also for $1,500. And then he assassinated a federal judge, John Wood, in, in San Antonio. He confessed there was evidence against him, and yet Woody Harrelson uh, insists that his father is innocent. He's also made comments that show a total disregard in my, in my mind. Uh, you know, Harrelson killed, Charles Harrelson killed at least 20 men, according to everything the Texas Rangers believed about him. And when Harrelson, Woody Harrelson, publicly uh, shows this kind of self-pity and wishes he could sit on a beach and have lunch with his dad like he was having with the reporter he was talking to. I think it shows a disregard for those survivors who have suffered from uh, Charles Harrelson's savagery. Um, so 
my thought was in, in this, and, and, and let me tell you, I, I really thought he got an, I, I don't believe he was innocent of the murder of Judge Wood, but he certainly got a raw deal on the trial itself. I mean, he, he should have gotten a new trial. I think from, I think my brother would have thought that. Uh, but, but as far as this public uh, support of his dad, I would quote Casey Musgraves, the, this wonderful country and western singer, keep it to yourself. Put it on the shelf. There's also the choice of roles that he has played over the years, including natural-born killers and, and, and roles in, in movies like No Country for Older Men. Yeah, the, the, there was a leak from the set of natural-born killers that caught my attention. And it was uh, Woody Harrelson, of course, was playing uh, a murderer. And Oliver Stone, I guess this was a ticket-selling leak, would direct him to play it more like your father. For many, many years, I couldn't look at Woody Harrelson on TV or any place and until I finally uh, went to see, I never miss a Coen Brothers movie, mm. and I finally went to see No No Country for Old Men, and he was in it. And I looked at him uh, in that movie, uh, actually, I, I, I suddenly felt an enormous amount of sympathy for him. Uh, he had a, a, a father who he tried to, whose murderous background. I mean, the man was a pimp. He was an armed robber. Um, and I, I know he had difficulty resolving his issues with his dad. So it's nothing personal. Uh, I just wish he'd stay out of the public discussion. Talk about your own dad's reaction to Harrelson's acquittal and to dealing with with the consequences of that. Well, you know, um, Dad, Dad and I, by the time of Alan's murder, uh, were pretty much estranged. I actually, uh, in my own, I guess, perverse way, held him responsible too. I, I, I obviously, Dad didn't fire the bullet. But I thought he had, by his background, by the way he raised Alan, bouncing him from pillar to post, from military school to my mother and back again, I, I thought Dad had certainly pushed him in the path of the bullet. And so I was estranged, but Dad and my mother never recovered. No one recovers from the loss of a child. And he would spend a great deal of time talking to my sister about Alan. Um, and then as the years went on, you know, almost against your own will, you get better. Uh, I know I did. Uh, I, I, at first, I was uh, really, uh, really, really uh, depressed for a long time because I loved my brother a great deal. But Dad and and Mom never, never got righted. How did it impact your decision to become a trial lawyer? I, I was. I think I was born to be a trial lawyer. Uh, my mother told me that when I was eight, I told her I was going to be a lawyer. And I never thought twice about what I would be. I um, always wanted to be a trial lawyer. The, the, um, I had public speaking in my background, debate. My mother had been on radio, the first woman to host her own show in Arkansas, I'm told. And she taught me some things that, that really gave me a leg up, uh, like not stammering and if you find yourself interrupting a sentence with er or uh to immediately snap back in place 
Alan taught me how to close. You know, I, <laughs> it, it, it's the same thing in front of a jury. You are you have to overcome objections. So I was meant for the courtroom, and it affected me only only in the sense that it fueled my desire to become a success. David Berg, his book is Run, Brother, Run, a memoir of a murder in my family. David, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, it was it was uh, a pleasure, and thank you uh, for having me on. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 